and welcome once again to yet another edition of ESPN's Formula One podcast. I'm Alexis Sunez, a mere sidekick to the true heroes that are Nate Saunders and Lawrence Edmondson, our F1 gurus here once again with us coming at you from the comforts of our own home, of course, in these uncertain times where we're still aiming to keep you very much entertained because we are entertaining and, of course, informed as well. Gents, before we get into everything, because we do have quite a bit to talk about as we clearly seem to every week. What have you been up to? How have you been keeping? Not an awful lot, to be honest. Um, trying to keep abreast of what's going on in Formula One, but there isn't a huge amount, as you might expect. So, um, yeah, really, it's just been a case of sitting at home, doing doing the work that needs to be done, and watching a lot of box sets and stuff on TV. Doing your part to save lives. Absolutely. Yeah, about the same about the same for me as well. I think by the end of this, I might actually finish Netflix and Disney Plus uh, both together. <laughs> oh, man, I haven't started. There's so Disney much on there, but there's so much time to watch everything. So. I have not started Disney Plus yet, but I feel like I'm almost finishing Netflix now. But we'll get to that later on. Right, so as usual, we like to get some news because even though there is no actual races and action going on on the track now, but we do still have some news, of course, as everyone's trying to figure out, you know, when we could possibly even get some what of a season left. I know we're holding eyes, ears, fingers, toes crossed. But some interesting headlines here coming out that, of course, I'm going to have you guys um, weigh in on. Probably the one that definitely caught my eye today was certain comments from Helmut Marco saying that he's encouraged his team's drivers at Red Bull to become infected with the coronavirus while the season is on a hiatus. And he's basically said, look, they're all strong young men in good health. That way they would be prepared for whenever the action starts. <laughs> I try yeah, not to pretty, laugh, but... <laughs> what? It's a pretty wild quote, and it, 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 it definitely jumps out at you. So for anyone not aware of Helmut Marco is the guy who basically gave Sebastian Vettel, Daniel Ricciardo, Max Verstappen their break in Formula 1. He's a huge part of the Red Bull F1 operation. And um, he has basically, he said that one of his kind of ideas a couple of weeks ago was to get all the drivers. So Red Bull has Verstappen and Albon, obviously at Red Bull, they have Fiat and Gasly at AlphaTauri, but they also have uh, a lot of junior drivers who are basically Red Bull affiliated. And it sounds like Marco's idea was to get all these guys together into a camp and basically ensure that they got the coronavirus while they were there so that later in the year, when the racing starts again, they're, they're at less risk. Now, I'm not sure about the science behind that. I don't know whether people are sure whether you can, whether you're immune if you catch it or, you know, and, and whether you can get it again later in the year. That's still one of the question marks about it. But there's a great quote in it. So he was talking to Austrian TV and he rounded off the bit about the camp where he just said, let's put it this way. It has not been well received, which I think must be one of the understatements of the, um, of the season so far, because I can't imagine how that pitch process went down if it did go down. Um, I actually reached out to Red Bull about this uh, earlier today and they didn't comment on it, but there was a suggestion that it might be a joke that kind of got lost in translation a bit. But if that is the case, it's still quite a weird joke to make at this point. So, um, yeah, uh, an interesting one. Keep, uh, I mean, kicking off the week, really, for us in terms of Formula One news, but um, contrasting to some of the other headlines that we've seen um, about F1 and coronavirus this week, definitely. I know. I think that the cabin fever might slightly be getting to everyone, especially especially him there because just again reading some of the quotes I just see him say that this would be the ideal time for the infection to come I don't think any time's an ideal time for coronavirus there but Lawrence what did you what was your take on it how did you read it 
Um, I, I was pretty surprised. Um, it does kind of read like a slightly off-coloured joke, doesn't it? But um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Utterly bizarre. But the thing about Helmut Marko is that he's kind of like a headline-making machine. Like even when we're uh, racing normally, he'll say stuff. And um, yeah, you know, if you see like some of the background kind of footage of him in uh, in Drive to Survive and stuff like that, you see that he's um, he's quite a character, and he's kind of he's pretty ruthless in the way that he operates. Uh, junior team it, technically he's an advisor of Red Bull but he does essentially run that junior team so uh while we can criticize him a lot he's also the guy that's uh brought in Vettel, Ricardo, Verstappen into Formula One and kind of made them kind of toughen them up and made them into the kind of world beaters that those guys are so uh he knows how to do what he does but he's kind of got a very old school way of doing it and of course he's an old racing driver himself so um, he's lived through some pretty remarkable stuff. Um, he lost his eye racing in Formula One, and um, yeah, he's uh, he's quite a hard character. So um, it's you know it's one of those things, kind of I think maybe across generations and stuff, it doesn't read quite so well. But uh, that is pretty much Helmut Marco right there. That was definitely an interesting headline to um, I suppose wake up to and see, of course. But you know, I guess we'll just take it as it is. It'll be nice to know if it was just at least kind of a joke and nobody's actively trying to go out there and get coronavirus just because again I don't think it has been proven that once you get it you can't get it again I think that's what we're just hoping for but we will see moving on now to still some news that has to do with coronavirus of course and but this I suppose this is actually some good news so to speak finally it's refreshing to have some we knew that of course a ventilator is a huge part of the I guess we could say treatment and part of helping to save lives for patients affected with coronavirus, those that have to be hospitalized and in intensive care. And now we've learned that Mercedes has been involved in the creation of basically a CPAP machine, which is like, I know they use that sometimes with like sleep apnea. So it's a breathing aid um, that can help these coronavirus patients because we know hospitals around the world, of course, are just are getting absolutely pressured to be able to supply enough ventilators at the rate that this disease keeps spreading, the virus keeps spreading. So um, what's the what's the latest on that? And just exactly what is Mercedes' involvement in it? Yeah, all, all seven UK-based F1 teams have joined uh, something called Project Pit Lane, which um, is answering the government's, the UK government's call for uh, increased ventilators and medical equipment and all sorts of stuff. And... Um, I mean, I'm learning a huge amount about kind of medical equipment, just kind of doing a bit of background research on this. But um, one thing which uh, Mercedes engine side, so uh, they're called uh, high performance powertrains, Mercedes high performance powertrains are based in Bricksworth, uh, which is um, a kind of 15, 20 minute drive from Brackley where the F1 cars are built. This is where they build the engines. And um, they've been working with UCL for some time, University College London. And uh Basically, when it became clear that uh, there was going to be a shortage of ventilators and similar equipment that uh, people need to uh, deal with the worst symptoms of coronavirus, uh, they kind of sprung into action and they um, took apart what was a uh, an, an existing uh, piece of technology uh, that is called the Continuous Positive Airway Pressure, or CPAP, as it's kind of referred to, I think, in medical kind of circles. And um, they've been used quite a lot in Italy and China uh, for treating people uh, without having to have a full ventilator uh, kind of attached to a person, which means kind of sedating them and stuff like that. So it's a good kind of middle ground. And basically what they did is they, they took this existing uh, piece of equipment and um, that was no longer under a patent. And they uh, took it apart, saw how it worked, and uh, and they basically reverse engineered their own one from from what they had there. But the crucial thing is that they reverse engineered it so that it was incredibly easy 
to mass produce and produce incredibly quickly. And so these are, this is a key thing because if the uh, rise continues in terms of coronavirus cases and people with serious symptoms and people need to go to hospital, uh, the UK government's warned that there's a danger that they could run out of, um, of, of ventilators to, uh, to, to look after those people. So they need as many uh, new bits of equipment as possible. So what these teams are often doing is, is, is as much kind of actually producing them, but also engineering new uh, designs and coming up with designs, which of course have to go through all the normal safety tests and so on but coming up with these new designs uh, that can be used. So Bricksworth, along with the UCL, uh, work, worked on this design. And what would usually take maybe a year or so to uh, to produce, they did in 10 days, 100 working hours, uh, was all it took for them to take this thing, strip it apart, figure out how to make a better one, figure out how to mass produce it, send it to the NHS, get it approved uh, by the government, and away they go with producing those. So the hope being that um, when people inevitably do end up with uh, coronavirus given the amount of cases that we have in the UK and, and how it's how it's progressing uh, there will be equipment there to um, to treat these people in hospital and it's a, a time when Formula 1 teams are essentially shut down most of the teams currently are on their uh, kind of enforced break at the moment uh, which was brought forward from August so now that that's going ahead you know you may as well use some of those brains to uh, to work on something that's really worthwhile and is hopefully going to go uh, some way to helping this crisis. Yeah, definitely. Because I mean, even just reading it, it sounds absolutely extraordinary. Because they were saying, if you know, certain trials go well, they could produce around Mercedes can produce around one thousand of these machines a day, which is just outrageous as well. So, is it that the trial period is is over? It's been officially approved and accepted, and hospitals can start um, using it and ordering it. And is there any news of, say, some of the other teams, like we've said, like McLaren or Williams or whatnot, getting involved? Yeah, I, I think that's that's right. More more or less what you've said. Um, the the other teams are all working together. They're actually working together in a consortium with a huge amount of other types of industry, and they've um, they've received an order as well. So um, I I'm not entirely sure on, on the exact differences. Again, I'm learning a lot between the difference between uh, a CPAP and a ventilator and stuff like that. But um, it seems like all the teams are, uh, are working towards it where they can and where they can contribute. And it's really just a case of uh, using the skill and the expertise and then the, to some extent the, the manufacturing capability uh, to produce um, stuff that's useful. But it's, it needs to be coordinated centrally. So uh, the team's quite early decided that um, there was no point in each of them kind of pursuing their own uh, kind of projects as they would in Formula One, of course. Uh, and it was much better for them to work collectively. And I think that's really... Uh, kind of summing up the spirit of, of, of motorsport. I mean, it's not the first time that motorsport has given something uh, to the world that is useful and that helps their lives. Obviously, it's usually to the motor industry. But, um, you know, a, a lot of these engineers are some of the top engineers uh, in, in the world, certainly mechanical engineers. And, uh, and so there's a huge amount of knowledge there which can be useful and kind of using those brains and kind of getting them working in, in, in one direction is, is exactly what they tried to do. And, um, what's coming out of it is, is quite remarkable. And it is a good news story amid a lot of uh, very worrying headlines. Definitely, Nick. Anything to add? No, um, Lawrence covered it really well. But I mean, um, just on top of the, we're talking F1 and coronavirus, um, like obviously the team's doing a lot, but we've seen a lot of drivers taking a proactive approach as well. So Lando Norris at the weekend raised £10,000 and he's agreed to shave his head as mm-hmm. as the result of, of reaching that target as well. So it's good to see the sport kind of rallying around um, different ways of just of just helping out when they can. 
right. So that's definitely some welcome good news um, on the front just of coronavirus on our whole. And so moving on now, because, of course, the main question that we keep having week in, week out, or I think every day when we wake up, the number one question we ask ourselves is, are we anywhere closer to somewhat of a season? And I've already asked your, you guys and tried to pick your brains of just thinking as the days and weeks pass, how much of a season can we actually get now that we've had like eight races, I think you see, that have been cancelled or postponed, so to speak. And I saw some comments from Ferrari boss, Matia Binotto, earlier on this week, and he said that, look, we're assessing various ideas, having races closer together, maybe doing two or three races in January and cancelling Friday practice. Now, I'm no expert like you guys, of course, but these sound like pretty big decisions. You know, it's almost like cancelling practice for, for football as well and just going into game day, kind of not cold turkey, but something like that. What do you think of those ideas? Are they, you know, realistic and having the world championship go straight into January? Is that kind of like the path you think we're headed on? Well, first of all, cancelling Friday practice is a great idea anyway. Um, but if they're going to achieve the season that it seems that F1 wants, they're going to have to do that. Um, but not too said, obviously, going into January, you're going to... There's a, such a backlog of these races. Um, it's going to be... They're going to have to use as much time as they as they get, I guess. But the key to all of it is when they can start the season. So Chase Carey said 15 and 18 races, but it was based on a best-case scenario that they can start in the summer. And it's impossible to predict where we're, what this is going to look like, but it's hard to imagine many European races happening in the next couple of months. Um, so at the moment, you know, and, and the Canadian Grand Prix, for example, has to decide by Easter, I think, the Easter weekend, um, about whether what they do with their race. So um, a lot of guesswork at the moment, it sounds like. But as soon as we get back to racing, I think it will be pretty much non-stop racing because there's going to be a certain amount of weekends and they're going to have as many races as they can fit into that into that spell. It's going to be pretty pretty manic. I'm not sure um, how they'll quite do it. But, um, yeah, if they can salvage the season, I guess they will. And when he says probably having races closer together, um, of course we know that probably means with dates. But geographically speaking, I suppose that has to come into consideration a little bit too. Would they take some of the races, like we said now, probably some of the bigger ones where, you know, a lot of money has been invested in there and probably try to reschedule them in place of other ones that are a bit more far out, you know, like say probably keep more just on the European circuits or what what are they thinking by keeping them, you know, this close together? Yeah, it, it, it is a tricky one. So there's several criteria which they're probably going to use to create a calendar once they have something of a start date, which is the real tricky thing. One of the big things is the climate in each of those areas. So if you are going to run a season into January, you're not going to be holding races at Spa and Silverstone in January because there's high chance it's going to be freezing temperatures. It could be snowing. So what you're probably looking at is that you've got races in the Middle East and, um, and other parts of the country, uh, parts of the world where uh, the weather's much better at that time of year. Southern Hemisphere races, maybe we don't have many, but you know, maybe Brazil or something like that. And so you would probably look to run those uh, later in the year and then make the most of what's left of the summer from the starting point, if there is any summer left, uh, to get through some of the European races. But the other thing that comes into this uh, when you're deciding which races go ahead and which don't is, is money, of course, because uh, Formula One uh, needs the money from the races to survive. The team needs need the money from the races because they get paid centrally from Formula One based on the revenues that Formula One uh, brings in each year. So... I would expect the races that spend a bit more money to be prioritised. 
and uh, and so you'll start to have a calendar come about like that. But it's been quite clear uh, from Formula One. They've said 15 to 18 races. I think they've said that because they need to prove to their shareholders that they still have a viable business this year, that they're still going to be bringing in money, and there is no money in Formula One if you don't have a race, really. So, um, so that, that you know, that I think they're trying to make it sound, you know, give the world a best case scenario of we're going to have uh, races happening this year. And this is roughly how many we're going to have, but um, but I don't think anyone yet is is willing to talk about a start date. All they are talking about is ways later in the year that you can work races in because um, you know if, if it does run through to January, maybe February, you've also got the 2021 season starting up. Um, the advantage there is that F1's bought itself a bit of time by saying that all teams have to stick with the same chassis from 2020 to 2021. So things like pre-season testing all that winter development that we're used to, that we had actually quite recently, uh, probably won't be uh, so necessary going into 2021. It may be scrapped completely uh, because they'll be racing so late uh, in the official 2020 season that will run into early 2021 uh, that they then basically just continue, start again with the new year, as, as, as you would expect, and carry on. But it's so hard to tell. Like, There's no actual answer at the moment as to when the season will start, as to how many races it will have, as to where those races will be, which ones will be prioritised. So it's all up in the air. But um, I think the stuff that Bonotto was talking about came from a team principals meeting, I think happened on Thursday last week. So the team principals are meeting regularly, but they've also given the power to Formula 1 to create the calendar itself um, without the need to kind of uh, negotiate with the teams on various things. So uh, really what it will come down to is F1 negotiating with the, uh, the promoters, and um, and basically coming to terms which work for everyone. But it's a really tricky situation because all the promoters have created those races around their original dates and they've kind of, you know, sold tickets and so on. And a lot of the circuits have said that your ticket is still valid even for the new date. But imagine that you've planned your year and, you know, it's all changing around anyway. So it's a, it's a tricky one. And I don't really know where it ends up. I don't think anyone really knows where it ends up at the moment. But, um, yeah, we'll have to wait until we get some better visibility on, on how this virus is going to uh, going to develop and when life can go back to normal. We were talking about best-case scenario there. Um, we had Bernie, Bernie Eccleston kind of gave a worst-case scenario, kind of stirring the pot a little bit last weekend. So he spoke to Reuters and said if he was still running F1, he'd consider canning the season completely, which, as Lawrence said, there's shareholders, etc., which make that pretty impossible. But, you know... <laughs> That is, you know, other, other sports are talking about that. You know, in the Premier League, there's the discussion about whether you cancel the season completely. So, um, but yeah, Bernie, like, it, it was obviously, I guess, a chance to kind of just stir the pot a little bit. But um, I don't see that being uh, an option. But like, like, for all the reasons Lawrence just said, but it was just another interesting bit that added to this whole narrative was of, 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 uh, of what they do next. Yeah, but Bernie does have a history of, of making yeah. life difficult for uh, Liberty. Because Liberty yeah. essentially took the sport from his control uh, when they bought it and they made him chairman emeritus, which is basically sticking him upstairs in the attic and uh, continuing to run it themselves. So in, at times when Formula 1 has been struggling since it's come under Liberty, Bernie has been keen to uh, to go out there and, and, and talk and maybe even sometimes even approach promoters or talk about promoters directly in the media and uh you know and that's something which he's known to do and i kind of feels like he's doing that again but you know he's there's also an element of truth to what he's saying there is a reality here that if governments don't allow free travel if we're not allowed to go to racetracks 
then we can't have a season. And that's something that's completely out of Formula One's hands. Uh, it's out of the promoter's hands. It's out of Bernie's hands. It's out of everyone's hands. It's, you know, it's in the hands of government. And uh, government are entirely reacting to the reality of the virus. Well, still such a sticky situation, as I said, because we're still, I mean, not even three weeks really in, I guess we could say, these government-mandated quarantines. And, and obviously everyone's rushing because there's gazillions of dollars on the line here to try and get some sort of sport back. But as, you know, Lawrence said, it's just it's just a guessing game now because we don't even know what's going on from day to day, really and truly. So, all right, perfect. So I think we've pretty much covered... All the latest headlines, or at least the biggest ones, you know, coming out of the Formula One world right now. I know we are grasping for stuff and so much so that we've probably set records in terms of binge watching on Netflix. I know Lawrence said he's probably, or was it you, Nate, that said that you were halfway done through Netflix and have gone on to Disney Plus? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all about The Simpsons and Star Wars now oh. uh, for, the, for the foreseeable future. Lawrence, what are you watching? Uh, I just finished Tiger King, which is so good. It's, oh yeah, that is yeah, that is such sensational viewing. I think um, it's like a hot mess. I mean, it really is. But as a purely from documentary making like uh, purpose, it, it's incredible. Like the footage they have, the stories they got, it, it's it's very good. Um, and I'm also a big Louis Farouk fan, so that's kind of like my my comfort food in terms of viewing. But he actually interviewed the same guy back in the day, and then yeah, and they kind of gone in and they just blown it even further apart. It's incredible. Uh, definitely worth watching. Well, that's basically been my focus for the last 48 hours. I think, well, I mean, this brings us to obviously our main discussion now of the podcast, because I think I went too hard on my first day or two days of quarantine or self-isolation. And that's when I obviously binge watch Drive to Survive. I know you guys would know because I was messaging you at all hours of the night with 3,000 million questions, probably, because that was the first time that I actually felt like I could relive the last two seasons and I've been getting excited for this season, whatever that's going to be. Um, and so it was just perfect. And it's not often that I like to open up my WhatsApps or my DMs to show the world and make it public, but I'm going to kind of, we'll, we'll try to kind of give our listeners, I guess, a taste of the conversations that I've had with you two um, on some key figures, I guess, that really I thought came to the forefront or stole the show in those two seasons I watched of Drag Survive and, we could probably have you guys expand on it a bit more because you got to actually live it out, you know, covering the last two seasons. And I suppose the first one that we have to start with and what a revelation it was. And I know I'm super late on this bandwagon, but I am officially ready with my season ticket to the Danny Ricardo show all day, every day. That man was absolutely brilliant i mean he knows how to work a camera probably better than i do and i know nate wrote an entire book about him so i'm surprised you only you had time to fit everything in just one book <laughs> well so it was mainly pictures so the words weren't the key part of it so i was actually i was actually under a strict limit of how many words i could write on 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 his career um it's going to come up at some point anyway so the funny story about the book is it was relevant for all of 24 hours and then so it came out um august the 4th i think 2018 and i was flying to america i had some time off i went to chicago so i woke up about three in the morning in chicago to a phone that was buzzing like crazy it turned out he'd moved to Renault. then you know that was the announcement and um so so the book had come out and it's all of it's all emblazoned with him and red bull and saying how loyal he'll be to the red bull program best chance to win championships with red bull and um the book had been out for a day and then he moved to Renault. So um yeah, 
I think we literally. referenced that story last week, so I just thought I'd I thought I'd just drop it in there. That is literally it's called the it's called Pursuit of Greatness. If anyone wants it, it's a it's a nice coffee table book, and it's quite heavy as well. So you know, if you want to, if you're playing any indoor games in in quarantine, it's quite quite helpful for that as well. I need to get it. I mean, Lord knows we have time to to read or look through pictures now, but mm. I think that's definitely where I wanted to start because, of course, the whole. Um, story of him that was mainly portrayed was just the fact of his time at Red Bull and like you said how committed he was it was like his day one bay I mean I know it's like vice versa of course but he seemed love you have Christian Horner speaking such wonderful things about him and I think what surprised me is that obviously he had been talking about wanting a new challenge and I, I suppose hinting as if I even though I knew of course he was eventually at Renault by now but he was constantly hinting that he wanted something new. And I, I think to see the genuine surprise on Christian Horner's face when the news dropped, um, I think just kind of led to, to, to reveal a situation, how massive that news was. And I just have to ask you guys, just take me back and what was it like that entire season until Nate was on vacation in Chicago and that news <laughs> dropped? Did you have any hints that it was going to happen or... No, not really. The um, the race before was the Hungarian Grand Prix, and um, we were out there and uh, stayed on for the test. So there was a short two-day test on Tuesday and Wednesday afterwards. Ricardo was present there, and um, the teams don't tend to do the same kind of like media activities at the test as they do at race, but Ricardo did do a little huddle at the back of a garage, and obviously he was asked about his future. We all knew that he had to make a decision soon. We were all probably slightly surprised that he hadn't just completely committed to Red Bull. I can't remember the exact quote, um, but it was pretty much like, yeah, it's just a matter of signing the contract, you know, dotting the I's, crossing the T's, and uh, and I'll be there. And, and it made perfect sense because we all kind of knew that he wasn't going to get into Mercedes. We knew that he wasn't going to get into Ferrari, even though, you know, there were questions as, as to who would be in those seats and stuff. But it didn't look likely. So we just assumed, well, why would you take a big step back from those top three teams? As we talked about so many times on this podcast, the only three teams that win races in modern Formula One, why would you leave one of those and go somewhere else? So we all kind of went off on the, uh, some holidays thinking, yeah, you know, at some point we might be lucky, we might get a story to fill the gap uh, with Ricardo re-signing his, his Red Bull contract. Little did we know that he basically left that test and uh, flew to Los Angeles and it was on that flight on the way to Los Angeles that he kind of sat down, thought about it, kind of listened to some music, looked out the window, all that kind of stuff. And uh, when he was in LA, he made the made the big decision. Um, and yeah, it it was a real kind of it blew my mind. I, I think uh, I think I was in Disneyland Paris at the time um, when when the news broke. I think it was that one. Um, and uh, and I think Nate was on holiday too. Like Nate said, he was in the US. So we were both kind of on holiday, not yeah. expecting any news, kind of like trying to recharge our batteries before the second half of the season. And then probably the biggest story of the year, certainly in terms of driver movement, broke. So, um, yeah, yeah it, was, it was a real surprise. You asked about any hints of it happening. I did. In, it was one of these things in hindsight when you look back at it. But I, on the Sunday evening, was basically, I think, was given a pretty big hint from someone close to Ricardo that that was going to happen. But like Lawrence said, everyone was just assuming, oh, he's going to stay at Red Bull, so it didn't register in my head. I don't think it registered in anyone's head because when he was saying, oh, I'm looking at my options, that they'd really closed at that point. So it did just come out of nowhere. Um, and I don't think that anyone really, I think people underestimated Ricardo because, as you said, he's kind of that kind of jovial guy that owns the camera and stuff. 
the move he made was incredibly ballsy. You know, it it it, it was not the safe option at all to, to make that move. And then he was also quite close to joining McLaren as well. Zach Brown said he came close to getting him. And yeah. Ricardo thought that was just too much of a risk given where McLaren were then. And when you see the Ricardo on the surface, you might be forgiven for thinking, well, this guy's just, you know, he's he's just going to play it safe. You know, he's, he's going to have fun and stay where it's easy to win. I think that that actually does him a disservice. The fact that he made that move um, was incredibly, it, it, it took a lot of guts to do it because the Red Bull program is definitely where it is now is much better than where the Renault program is. So, um, yeah, I think that must have come down to the way he's perceived in the paddock. Um, I think it's a good thing for him to be perceived like that a lot of the time, but sometimes it means that people maybe underestimate him or maybe just kind of see him as the the guy that's going to make jokes and make people laugh and stuff like that. So I, I, I've always thought that was quite interesting how that was perceived. How was the news? There, there were two sides to that story as well as it played out. So there was the, the side that they just put, you know, Ricardo took a kind of chance and wanted to kind of do his own thing and all this kind of stuff, which is very much the story coming out of the Ricardo side. Mm. and the Renault side. And then there was a story coming out of the Red Bull side, which was basically Ricardo didn't want to go up against Verstappen anymore. And um, you could understand that because, you know, Verstappen uh, is clearly incredibly talented. He's, I, I think, you know, he's only second to Lewis, really. And to be honest, those two are pretty close and Max is much earlier in his career. And it was clear that the Red Bull program was all centred around Max. He was their guy. He was the one who was... Um, kind of coming through the, the Red Bull Junior program as, as the youngest thing. Ricardo had done that a few years earlier and displaced Vettel. And now it looked like history was repeating with Verstappen taking over Ricardo's place at the top of the Red Bull team. So there was that. And then there was the small factor of the money, which was mm. significant coming from Renault. Very, very significant. So I think the truth, um, obviously, Ricardo will know exactly what the truth is. He'll know exactly what. Uh, was going on, but I think uh, looking at it from the outside as a journalist, it's a mixture of all those things. I think you know, I, I think it did make sense for Ricardo to leave the Verstappen uh, team that was being built up at Red Bull. Um, and if you look now, how long Red Bull have committed to Verstappen, there was no doubt that they he was always their man, and they always wanted to keep him. And in fact, it was a case of trying to stop him going to other teams rather than rather than anything else. So. Um, I think Ricardo saw it as an opportunity to take maths into his own hands rather than have it dictated to him and, uh, and made the jump. But it was, a, it was an interesting story because whoever you talked to had a different, different take on um, exactly the reasons why he made that decision. Yeah, exactly. Because even, I mean, if you fast forward after, then it does show him kind of arriving at Renault and he kind of talks about how it was like a nice little family atmosphere and all the eyes were on him and you kind of felt like, he finally felt like he was top dog again, like number one, because obviously at Red Bull, there was that whole thing about whether he's afraid, you know, to, to just kind of go up against Max Verstappen. Because Max, sometimes I forget how young he is because he's quite an intense figure. I mean, we could definitely talk about him um, a bit more there. But then for you guys and just in the in the wider world, whether it's from hearing from other drivers or, or whatnot or other team principals and whatnot, how was that news received? Did majority just think that he really was kind of shying away from this little, I guess, inside competition coming up from Max Verstappen? Or did you feel that, look, Daddy Rick is kind of the, he's too big a name and too big a character to be anybody's, I guess, number two or support driver. It's time for him to go somewhere and, and really buy into the, the I suppose, a work in, in, a work in progress and kind of grow with that team, which is now Renault. 
think some were clearly quite surprised by it. I, I think it was, I think Kevin Magnuson, when we spoke to him at the race after, so Magnuson's point has always been that a lot of drivers are kind of trapped in the midfield. You know, there are midfield teams and it's hard for them to move up to a race wing team. And I think it was him that he said, it's weird because Ricardo's kind of moved away from that to a team where at the moment he can't win. So I think there's more surprise than anything else for people. But I think it very quickly, the, the, the new cycling for law moves on so quickly. It felt that season like we just stopped talking about it before long. Um, and I guess in hindsight, we'll, we'll know whether we made the right decision or not. But um, it seems to be based on this year, doesn't it? If he if he's able to move to a top team, which now looks pretty unlikely anyway. I guess now all of his chips are with either Renault, mastering, well, mastering 2021 was originally it, but obviously now that's 2022. Um, so I think most, most drivers were either interested in it, but on the whole, it was just complete surprise for most people. I don't know, Lawrence, whether you remember it any differently. No, I think that's right. Um, it's an interesting point what this uh, kind of change or basically the effect the coronavirus had on F1 and, and what impact that has on Ricardo's career going forward because uh, 2021 was going to be the big shake-up year and um, for a long time it was when a lot of the top drivers, uh, their contract ran out. Of course, Leclerc and Verstappen have already re-signed long-term, Verstappen for Red Bull, uh, Leclerc for Ferrari, Lewis we expect to re-sign with um, with Mercedes, so there's still, but there's still some seats there. And Ricardo has very much got his eyes on those, and I think he is um, very much top of everyone's list. And uh, going into this season, the big question was, you know, can Ricardo make that change? Also, it's a slightly blind change because you're going into 2021 regulations and all that kind of stuff. But now there's real kind of a real change in the way that you know, if we have the season like we said earlier that goes into early 20. Uh, 21, the 2020 season goes into early 2021. Then we start again immediately afterwards. Our team's even going to be looking to shake up their driver uh, kind of uh, uh, lineups in that time. Most of the contracts, I think, run to December 31st. So, you know, that's going to be before the end of the season. So drivers, I'm not entirely sure what's going to happen in terms of the contractual situation uh, with drivers and so on. But then if Renault are saying to Ricardo, if he becomes, you know, Renault becomes their, his only option, they're not going to just say, all right, well, we'll just keep you for a year and then, you know, see, say goodbye to you in 2022. They're going to be pushing for at least a two-year contract to try and keep him there because they really value him. And um, as a marketing exercise, what better person to have to promote your product than Daniel Ricciardo? So I think that's a really interesting thing. Is he actually going to find himself locked into Renault a little bit longer just mm-hmm. because of this big shakeup we've had in terms of the regulations and the potential season going into another year? It's, there's so many questions that get thrown up around this, and um, it looks like Ricardo might get a little bit caught in the middle. Um, he does say every time he's asked about it that he would like to continue his career at Renault, and that, you know, really he wants this project to succeed. But I think we all know deep down that if Mercedes came knocking, if Ferrari came knocking, then he would go to one of those two teams. But um, but it may be the case that he's now staying at Renault. But yeah, fascinating to see how that. Um, one of the things that I thought made it even juicier, this move of Daddy Rick, was just seeing how Christian Horner was with Cyril from Renault. I mean, they were like feisty. And I know they were constantly going about the energy and Red Bull saying that, you know, the Renault engine was not giving them enough power and blah, 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 and whatnot. And obviously it showed the deterioration of their relationship right before Honda then eventually came in. But I thought, I felt like, Christian Horner seems so obviously caught up in that world and all that kind of stuff. And then when the Danny re- and then all of this went on, like right behind him and they immediately poach your driver. And it's kind of like, 
guess what? You're actually not officially done with me yet. And I remember there was a moment where <laughs> I think Christian Horner asked Cyril if, if they've got enough money left after they got <laughs> Danny Ricardo there. But I thought those two characters, I thought, really stood out. And I mean, did you guys have any idea of what was going on there just between them? Obviously, they're two very powerful um, just figures, I think, in Formula One on a whole. And, you know, just was that all just behind the scenes or did you actually get to see it play out? I know a bit sometimes in press conferences, which I was quite surprised that they were, you know, throwing some serious jabs when they're sat, like, right beside one another. Well, there's it's definitely, it's... definitely history there from even 2014. I remember them falling out over the Renault engine and similar people tweeting a picture of um, some boxing gloves. And he said, oh, I'm ready to go to Bahrain, which was the second race that year. Um, in reference to the fact that he had this falling out with, with Christian. So it played out in the public before that. Um, and I think everyone knew that there was, I mean, Horner always used to make these kind of digs at, at mm. several people. And Lawrence and I have actually laughed at it before because Horner's very good at um, kind of twisting the knife a little bit. And he always has this kind of right smile on his face sometimes yeah. when he does it. So I think if I was Cyril in that situation, you can see why he enjoyed being able to go back and say, well, look, I've actually, you know, poached your driver and he didn't think it was, it was possible. Yeah, because um, Horner's stock response, which I think was in that press conference in uh, France 2018, uh, and I think made it into the series, I can't remember exactly, but it was that uh, when I first met, this is what Horner says, is that when I first met Cyril, he was making the tea for Flavio. And yeah. so, like, there's, you know, and he has said that on numerous occasions, and it's very much a dig at Cyril and kind of saying, you know, well, when I first started in F1, this guy was, you know, just the tea boy. Um, which, um, you know, I think is perhaps a bit unfair because even if that is true, uh, which I think there is some truth to it, uh, Cyril's come an awful long way and he's, you know, obviously done well to move his way up the Renault um, programme, no matter how you feel that he's done it. But, uh, you know, he's right there at the top now. So, um, but that, that is very, it's always been a public uh, debate. And it, it, Nate's right, it starts in 2014 when Red Bull go from being world champions to all of a sudden really struggling uh, to put even, I think, you know, it was something ridiculous. Like they really struggled to put, you know, 100 kilometers together in, in the first test or whatever, you know, in 2014. And the, the engine was just awful. And, um, but Renault always felt a bit annoyed with Red Bull because they felt through that time when they won four championships together, they were never really given the recognition they should have been given. They were doing some remarkable things with the engine. It wasn't actually the most powerful engine on the grid, but in terms of uh, what they were doing uh, with exhaust blowing, which basically using the exhaust of the engine to increase rear downforce was incredible. And they were trailblazing there. And they always felt that they were never given the respect that they deserved in that regard. So there was always this uneasy relationship uh, underlying the Red Bull Renault thing. And no surprise that it eventually fell apart, but it did fall apart in the most dramatic way with Ricardo going as well, along with the engines, you know, to Renault. And um, yeah, it, it made for some great viewing, didn't it? But that... Um, Everything that you see there between those two is, is real, uh, definitely. In fact, it's probably been a little bit feistier at times as well behind closed doors. And um, but the thing I quite liked about it is that at the end of it, you know, it looked like Horner was getting his own way, Horner was getting his own way. And then at the end, Cyril, I feel like, kind of came out slightly above. Neither of them came out looking great, it has to be said. But I think Cyril kind of came out of that one uh, at the end. I can't remember the exact line, but there, there's a moment. And, you know, you kind of think, oh, well, you know, Cyril's kind of on there. but the, the, the thing with all these documentaries is that they always play up the characters to mm -hmm. 11, you know, on a scale of 10 to try and make it as entertaining as possible. So 
Um, I think, you know, the, the characters are maybe a little bit more subdued day to day, but that rivalry is there 100%. Uh, and, you know, the animosity that existed in that year was, was definitely there and present. Yeah, I think I think that's definitely something that made, that was the drama that I would follow and I couldn't wait till those two got back on. And like you said, I think towards the end, I, I figured Cyril got something back because to walk away with Danny Ricardo and literally just seeing the look on Christian Horner's face um, or just how he was even processing the news. And I mean, he didn't even hold back. He said he was absolutely, you know, shocked because, and clearly all of you were poor Nate in Chicago was shocked <laughs> and he wrote the book. I still can't believe it was only 24 hours. Oh, yeah. I would have, oh, I would have been gutted. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it's been in our little group. It's been a long running joke since then, but it, it, it's completely true. Like it, it couldn't have been any, well, it could have been worse time. It could have happened the day it came out. So I at least got a day. Um, so any more books being written or are you just or is it like a jinx now well I was we were joking that I should have written the like the season preview for 2020 you know why this is going to be the most action-packed year of the of the F1 history because obviously right now it would be it would be completely out of date oh that is very true but I definitely think oh Danik was absolutely brilliant in it I'm 100% on that bandwagon or the tractor, because he's been driving that around in more recent times instead of an actual Formula One car, but somebody else as well. And I mean, there's different teams. It was nice to see the dynamic, because of course, obviously, I always see about the big three. And it was interesting to see a bit more about Renault, and it was interesting to see a bit more about Williams too, which we'll get to in a bit, because I just need to ask you, why is it so sad there? But anyways, we'll get save that later, because then I want to talk about Haas. And in Haas, I have to talk about Gunther Steiner because he is another one that I'm here for the season ticket because I started playing a drinking game, drinking tea responsibly. I was saying, I think I told Lawrence that we should start a drinking game for how many F-bombs he just drops in that (laughs) series because it was getting to the point where I was just like, oh my God, oh my gosh, just like constantly drinking and He's just such a huge character as well. So I wonder what he's, you know, what he's even like in just real life and just being there and in the same atmosphere as him. He's exactly like that. He's fantastic. I mean, his his media, so on th- Thursdays we get media sessions and Gunther Steiner's media sessions can be some of the most entertaining <laughs> there because what's good about him is that he sometimes will just tell you how it is and he's not afraid to mince his words like you see but he's also I think he's just he's just quite open and um you can I think Lawrence said this to me once actually that you can kind of see why he's such a good character to work for because mm-hmm. you'd know he'd have your back and if he if you did something you didn't like I think he'd tell you and he'd tell you in pretty in pretty straight terms as well so um but yeah he's he's one of those characters that without that exposure might not have kind of gone mainstream but i think now he's kind of a cult figure there's a there's a gunther steiner parody twitter account which is um which is pretty good and it's I just, didn't follow it's, that. But, but, it, but it's just swear words it's not it, there's no no real language to it at all so um beyond that but uh but yeah he's he's fantastic and he's such good value for money lawrence what are your experiences with him uh no Nate, nate's absolutely right he's, he's really good fun um in those media sessions and kind of uh, talks back to journalists a bit as well, or kind of puts you on the spot a bit, which is always fun. So um, he's, he's, he's a top guy. And um, obviously he's best known for being a Hasting principal, but he was also knocked around a Red Bull uh, back in the day and, and Jagger as well. So he's got some serious history in the sport. And, um, you know, he's, he's, he's worked for some, uh, you know, some top teams as well as, as just running Haas. But I think in team principal 
kind of position it's, it's what suits him best and uh you know he's also one of those guys where if when they do a Friday press conference for the team principals and Gunter's in it, it's a bit like when Daniel Ricciardo's in the driver's press conference. You know you're going to get something interesting out of it, something funny out of it. But um, Haas are also very good with their time and they kind of let's talk to him every day, which is not the case with most team principals. Every day of a race weekend, at least not every day of the week, but every day of a race weekend. So, um, you know, you can always go down there and get his opinion on something, and uh, and also there's been some pretty pretty interesting stories following the Haas team around. Uh, mm-hmm. Last year there was the Rich Energy saga, was I think it became a saga. It was it went on that long, uh, which was their title sponsor that turned out basically to be um, a product that no one could find on the shelves of the shop. I'll stop short of saying certain stuff about it, but um, yeah, it, it it turned out to be something that didn't really exist in the real world um, and uh, and then it also turned out that the money dried up quite soon afterwards so Gunter throughout all of that was very good value he was he had to be very careful at the time about what he said a lot of times he would kind of close down talking about it in press conferences because there really was nothing more he could say at that time but you could tell by the way he said that that he was hugely um, pissed off about the whole situation and um, you know was biting his tongue a bit but uh, yeah kind of um, now and kind of off the record and stuff and in the Netflix thing you kind of get an appreciation of of, of how much um, that was uh, kind of uh, getting home over the whole year oh that that part as well just following Haas I had my head in my hand so many times I think that rich energy thing it all came and went in like the same episode and I said oh my goodness gracious it was like a horror movie watching but speaking of horror movies and this is what I have to do because I think I explained tried to ask Nate and then I got lost in everything else or Nate probably left me on red, but <laughs> Williams, oh my goodness, that is the most depressing story, like through season one and two, I kept saying, oh, well, maybe they'll have, because at least every, when they follow each team, they'll show a good, bad moment, good moment, and really good moments, and then whatnot, but Williams, it just actually went <laughs> all the way down, and I mean, I just have to, I know that they have it in their history and whatnot, but what's, What's the, what do you guys put it down to? Was there just a moment where the drop was just so big and what, like to just constantly be there at the bottom? Uh, no one wants to take that on. I'll take it on. <laughs> so I, took, um, I took the last few, so I thought I'd let Lawrence answer it differently. <laughs> no, that's right. It's, it, it is a tough one, like seeing when, you know, a, a great Formula 1 team like fell from grace. And we thought we were seeing a similar thing with McLaren until they got their act together quite recently. but. Um, I suppose if you really want to go back uh, through the years, it's probably when they lost uh, BMW engines in, in the mid-2000s. That was the last time they were kind of truly competitive uh, race in, race out. And so they went from being one of the big names, one of the big kind of uh, teams that engine manufacturers wanted to ally with, and slowly it kind of fell apart a bit. Uh, Patrick Head, who had been there from the very start as the uh, head of the technical side, kind of stood back. He still had shares in the team, but he stood back a bit. And so um, it kind of started to unravel. But you know, it's not that long ago that Williams were actually a pretty good team. So if you look at 2014, uh, 2015, 2016, the cars were still pretty competitive. And it was in uh, 2017 that they took a slightly different route. They tried to uh, they'd always had this very low drag car that was basically a kind of special at Monza and kind of Spa and places like that, places where uh, it suited that car. And then they kind of went the other way. And 
I think at that point there wasn't the technical leadership that you need in a team and arguably there wasn't the leadership at the very top that you need in a team and uh, and a few mistakes have been made. And then the other thing is they were existing in a changing world in Formula One. Williams very proudly uh, constructed as many of the parts as possible, pretty much the whole car, you know, the gearbox. It's so unusual for a team at the back of the grid to not just buy a gearbox from their engine supplier, yet Williams are determined to make their own. So, you know, that puts a huge amount of uh, stress on already stretched finances. And then when you don't have the money coming in the door, you know, it had the car had Martini on it for a number of years. That deal wasn't worth a huge amount of money for what was essentially a title sponsorship across the whole car. And so when the budget isn't quite there and it takes a wrong turn in a technical way and then all of it starts to mount up and fall apart and maybe, you know, the, the leadership isn't as strong as it should be to set it back in the right way and you end up with with the situation they've got. But, you know, I, I've got a huge amount of respect for Williams trying to continue the kind of, you know, the genuine constructor F1 model, which is, you know, you build everything yourself. If you look at Haas, who we were talking about just a second ago, completely different. They buy as much as possible from Ferrari, uh, you know, and then they use Delara to build their cars. So it's all kind of, you know, there's nothing really there of the core team. It's all kind of outsourced and brought in. And yes, they work on their aero by themselves and all this kind of stuff. But in terms of compared to what Williams is doing, uh, you know, the, the headcount is smaller and yet the results are better because what they have underlying is something quite different. So, you know, I, I think it's a real shame to see what's happened to Williams. Uh, it's, I don't, I, I think they're starting to come out of what was a real dip and uh, and that kind of came about when Paddy Lowe joined the team who was meant to be the saviour of Williams. He came from Mercedes, having been the technical director of Mercedes through uh, their success in 2014, 15, 16, 17, and then uh, and then went to Williams, but you know it just didn't didn't work, did it? So um, it, it it properly fell apart uh, under him, and that was last year, and that's a little bit of what uh, drives to survive exposes uh, some very frosty conversations in the uh, garage between Claire Williams, mm-hmm. deputy team principal, essentially the team boss, and Paddy Lowe, uh, the technical um, director, and kind of those two. Uh, yeah, kind of like heading off against each other. And eventually, of course, uh, Claire, um, with uh, the backing she has, you know, father still owning the team, or the majority of the team, um, won out, of course, and uh, and Paddy was sent packing. But the hope now is that they're starting from scratch, learn the lessons and rebuild. But it's such a big task, especially if they continue with uh, this uh, very admirable, but also very expensive way of kind of going about constructing a Formula 1 car. And on that, on that point of um, the leadership team, so ahead of what was meant to be the season, I went to there was a Williams event with Rocket, which is their title sponsor. And what's quite revealing there was it was revealed that, and I mean, I assumed it would be the case anyway, but their deal is dependent on Claire Williams staying in the job. So they basically said, if Claire ever leaves the job, and they made a point of saying it as well, which you would assume for someone in her position is the case anyway. Um, but they said our multi-year deal is if, if Claire ever left, it would be null and void. And I, I don't think that that's always a, a good thing because it suggests that there's a, a lack of accountability at the top. You know, if, if somebody is able to keep their job based on the fact that, you know, they're in that job and there's, there's deals and stuff tied to it. And obviously she has the name as well. So I don't envy the position she's in because if you're following someone, her, you know, her dad's legacy in F1 is absolutely remarkable. But 
I, I think that maybe that's that's one area where Williams could definitely improve. It's not about just getting rid of Claire from the job, but you know maybe that leadership team could look different. I know they've played around with it in different ways, but certainly the last few years doesn't seem to have, have worked perfectly. Um, and I think that might be one of the reasons why. Perfect. Well, I think we can um, wrap things up, guys. Any final thoughts before we head off into yet another week of planning for the next podcast? <laughs> No, nothing here. Just that, basically. Planning what the hell we're going to talk about next week. <laughs> Same thing we do every day, Pinky. But to be fair, we do have a couple of um, interesting ideas anyway to come on and to further develop. And hopefully we do eventually get to start chatting to some guests because that would be good, just getting it straight from the horse's mouth. Oh, yeah, we're, we're lining them up. We've got, we're lining we've got, them up. We've got a few. Um, some drivers who I think will be able to get on in, in, in this spell as well, so watch this space basically Ooh, Nate with all the connections plus we actually had a nice little um little activity earlier on today that you should definitely look out for we had a little quiz put Lawrence and Nate to the test I'm not going to tell you who won that one but we'll probably look and do more of of those and we'll maybe theme it this one was just a bit of a general one maybe we'll theme it to you know years or just Mercedes and Ferrari and you know whatever McLaren and We'll but if people are wondering why the podcast next week is just Alexis, it's because our bosses fired us for our terrible performance in that quiz. So <laughs> Lawrence is like, speak for yourself. <laughs> no, not at all. It was, it, was pretty <laughs> it was pretty bad. No, it was just good because the first couple of questions, as I revealed in the quiz, I came up with them and I knew, I, I was like, I refused to go easy on them because, I mean, what don't you know? Well, now I know a few things you don't know. A lot. Know. <laughs> yeah, a lot. <laughs> to be fair, because those aren't outright Formula One questions-ish. They were more based on the personality of certain figures around Formula One. So that was a little wrench I threw in, a nice little twist. Can't make it easy for you guys. Come on. You know everything. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thanks, guys, for hanging. We've had a massive sesh today. It's almost oh, it's almost 3 p.m. and I haven't even taken my dog's lapton out to... To walk also because it's raining. <laughs> but, I noticed. Good one. Yeah, well, I'm still going to try make it outside for my one government uh, mandated walk a day, doing my part. Hope you guys manage to make it out and get some fresh air as well. And we'll reconvene next week where we chat some more amazing stuff to keep everyone entertained and informed. Thanks for watching and thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. <laughs>